This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, First Call BC Child and Youth Advocacy Coalition, This Week in Blackness, The Tom Hartman Program, and Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp. We've talked about the war on the poor, which is is distinguished in my mind from the war on Christmas, the war on Christianity, the war on the rich, in that it actually exists. I told you about the Baltimore Republican who thought it was sort of an interesting idea to look at taking away food stamp benefits from the parents of children who were protesting in Baltimore. I told you about Kansas Republicans and House Bill 2258 which would ban poor people from purchasing all sorts of products, including concert tickets and lottery tickets and so much else, uh, as well as college sports tickets. I talked to you about the uh, uh, other laws, for example, in Missouri, where Republican Congressman Rick Bratton wants to prevent poor people from purchasing steak and seafood with uh, food stamp benefits. Just incredible. And we have yet another example. Uh, this one coming to us from Wisconsin. Now in Wisconsin, Republicans took the first step in punishing people who use SNAP benefits, food stamp benefits. This is Assembly Bill 177. It seeks to ban people who rely on food stamps from buying a huge list of products. This includes lobster, shrimp, and crab, as well as all sorts of other groceries. Red and yellow potatoes would not be allowed. Sweet potatoes and yams would be allowed. Seasonings would not be able to be purchased with food stamp benefits, Lewis, because if you're on food stamps, your food must be incredibly bland to punish you for the fact that you have not pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. And it's just this long list of stuff. Cranberry sauce, for example, would be banned from purchase with food stamp benefits. French fries and hash browns? Absolutely not. Pickles? Oh, no. No way at all. Canned peas and green beans? Those are off the list. And when you ask Wisconsin Republican State Representative Scott Allen what the point of this is, he says it's to make poor people healthier. Doesn't make any sense, Lewis. You know, it's uh, often cheaper to buy canned or frozen vegetables, uh, you know, compared to fresh vegetables. Uh, I, this is very confusing to me. I think he probably uh, is either either hates poor people and wants to uh, further this war on them or he's completely ignorant. Well, the organic food is also on the banned list in this new Wisconsin bill. So if the point is to make poor people healthier, why would you ban organic food? It just doesn't make any sense. And th this is fascism. This is not small government. This is big, intrusive government at its absolute worst. So I think this is really about, as we've talked about before, strict father morality. You know when parents say, if you live under my roof, you live by my rules, the sort of ultimate authoritarianism. If you buy food with our food stamp benefits, we decide what you eat. And that that's ultimately what this is. They're adding an advice section to the bill where they're actually saying you should supplement your calorie intake with twigs and tree bark that you find out but you, you uh, out in public. But you're going to have to pay for that too, Lewis, because those are the commons and we've privatized those. This is starting to pick up steam. I think other states are going to do this as well. And uh, do you think that ultimately this will will 
I don't know, maybe go to the Supreme Court. I mean, this is going to be challenged and appealed, right? This is absolutely going to be challenged and appealed, and I hope appealed by competent individuals. I don't know how far it will go, but the war on the poor is very, very real in this country. I can't afford no food. Don't make enough income. Come see if you can see my ribs. I'm too hungry to live, but I'm not asking for you to give me nothing. Pennsylvania government has taken the horrible, horrible step of allowing people to have the most meager of assets and still get food assistance. Why do we keep feeding people who can't afford to feed themselves how many how many lottery winners <laughs> are we going to have to let be on food stamps in this country um, I'm being somewhat facetious I hope people pick up on that uh, in Pennsylvania one of the upshots of voting out real uh, a-holes Governor Tom Corbett was voted out uh, just uh, six months ago, I guess, from the governorship in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania will now eliminate the asset test for food stamps as of Monday, I guess in a week from uh, more or less from today. There are only uh, 12 states, now they will go down to 11, that institute these asset tests. In other words... People are eligible to get food stamps based on their income. If you lose your job and you have a home and you have a car and you have a, an IRA, you may look like you're very wealthy. And you may indeed have a decent amount of wealth. But if you have no income coming in, you're going to have to eat away at that wealth. Now, this asset test did not include one car, did not include a house, and did not include a pension. But let's say you've put away $7,500 in savings, which maybe you're going to use to, I don't know, go to night school. You've lost your job and you want to uh, pick up a different trade. Or maybe you've saved that money to help your kids do something. Or to pay for, I don't know, child care. If you have over $5,500 in Pennsylvania today and you have no income whatsoever, you have to spend that money down to get the whatever it is, 200 bucks a month to get you uh, with some help with a uh, food stamps. In other words, you have to remain poor and not build any assets whatsoever or maintain any assets if you want to eat. And fortunately, um, Tom Corbett was voted out and that's going to end in Pennsylvania. I used to have two stomachs, one for dinner, one dessert. The first would fell up quickly and the second always growled and gurgled 
Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Sixteen million kids at the moment are hungry. Twenty percent of kids, that's one out of five, in 37 states and the the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. side of our government, go hungry. And tell us what that means exactly. Well, what it means is that it means a lot of things, but it means that they're distracted in school. A friend of mine who's a school teacher goes to the day-old bakery and gets baked goods and also she brings in gallons of milk for her whole class because so many of the kids can't concentrate because they're hungry. My guess is she uses her own money to do this? She uses her own money because the schools don't have a breakfast program even in areas where they desperately need it. And she finds that the kids are less disruptive and less dazed if they have some milk and a day-old pastry. And she gives them to everyone in the class rather than single out who's poor, which would be a daily humiliation. And it's part of their school day. One, even, you know, one out of four American children, one out of five, excuse me, has pizza as a meal at least once a day. Pizza is carbs, fat, and salt. And pizza is a meal for people, you can get a dollar a slice. It's cheap. And it also, and it has no nutrition, and it's easy for people who come home from work exhausted and haven't the energy or the hope to do something about adequate nutrition for their children. American children eat junk food in great quantities because they're home alone. They're home alone because there are no programs. The streets are unsafe for the half of American children who don't have the money to live in a, a kind place. And they, so they eat junk food. There was a study done in which bags of junk food and what children eat is equivalent to a cup of lentils eaten by a starving Nigerian child in terms of its nutrition val- nutritional value. So it not only leaves the children hungry, but also obese. One out of three American children is overweight or obese. If I could just interrupt, let me be the economist here. Right. I want everyone listening, everyone viewing, to understand that the capitalist private economic system, the market system we talk about, produces at great profit the junk food shoveled into these kids and doesn't produce the funds in the school to provide better nutrition, the education in the system to teach people not 
to depend on fat and salt for their diet. So we have a we have to see this as one of the consequences by which we evaluate the desirability, efficiency, and effectiveness of the economic system we live with, rather than pretending it's the source of all kinds of wonderful innovation by deftly avoiding facing these realities, which are just as much a product of this system as anything at the other end that we like to talk about. Very much a product, so that, and it's someone like Michelle Obama can tout healthy food when in poor neighborhoods you can't get healthy food because the big store chains close down and fruit fresh fruit and vegetables are very expensive and there is no subsidy and so that and there isn't compensation in terms of snacks and education and meals at schools they're always cutting down because the food industry in a lovely capitalist example wants to and under Reagan succeeded in getting ketchup to be called a vegetable and so that children don't even get nutrition when it's subsidized often and so that you're and you're also talking about giving the children of the future diabetes endocrine difficulties these are the things that come with being fat and one out of three american kids are fat and um, later heart disease and cancer because of the interest of time i wish we had more let me take the conversation in another direction and we obviously won't get to everything and we can sure. bring you back tell us a little bit about how at least some other countries in the world have managed the the lives of their children without these kinds of um, horror stories to be blunt well we're at the bottom of the fourteen um, wealthier OECD you know nations the wealthier nations of the world we're at the bottom in terms of what we give to children and so that we could look at a real a nation that really does subsidize its children let's say like Norway in Norway if you're a single parent you get first choice of housing you get excellent child care for your child you get a very liberal maternity leave. United States is the only country in the world except for Somalia and Swaziland that doesn't and uh, Papua New Guinea that doesn't give a paid maternity leave to mothers and paid as a matter of right and as law. a matter of right and law in, and also we have the least vacation time that is paid of any industrialized country so that parents don't have time to bond with their children we have the most single parents and the least subsidy now you could look at a very privileged country like Norway which goes way out of its way or you could look at a country like France in which about the same number of children as in the United States about a quarter little less are born poor however Child care is free starting at three years old in um, France, whereas it costs between five and $25,000 a year to have your child in a decent child care center in the United States. French daycares are governmental organizations in special little beautiful houses with trained personnel. And... 85% of U.S. kids have substandard care. And what does that mean? It means that your infant is parked in a 
an apartment in front of a TV sitting in a wet diaper between the ages of zero and two, which are the prime years of brain development. So you're basically deadening the brains of your future generations of children. Eighty-five percent of daycare in the United States is substandard because people can't afford it. There goes capitalism. You know, there you go. And in France, you get a clothing allowance for your school-age child. And every neighborhood has a center for school-age children as well as after-school programs and weekend programs. If you have an infant, you pay a dollar an hour for the most quality child care center. You have a liberal maternity leave and an aide comes to your house free as a matter of the government's course to help you manage your child or to babysit so you can go out and do something else and to help you get back into shape physically so that you know you have a very different system in every little rural town there's a sports center where people can be taken on free buses after school and go and play and there are study rooms you know that it's the United States is the worst in these things it's an extraordinary story I wish we had more time. We don't. We've run out of time. Uh, let me please ask you to consider coming back and continuing this conversation. I can't resist making a comment listening to you. This is a society that savages its children. Yes. You've just shown us that. It's also a society that talks endlessly, more than I hear in any other country in the world, about its commitment to family values. That is so stark a contradiction, so stark a suggestion to us that we need badly to rethink the kind of economic system that supports a whole industry of claiming family values while it in actuality is as destructive of the family as any force one could identify in modern culture. Totally. You know, one of the things, the people who most espouse family values are the same ones who urged the United States not to subsidize child care, after school care, weekend care, summer camps, nutritional values, and help for children across the board. And it was Reagan, the, the hero of the right wing, who vetoed Head Start for All American Children on the basis that it defied family values. Make them feel protected, give the children comfort. All we do and so all they see is human beings killing other human beings. The children are lost with no one to lead them. So I cry for the children. Cry for the children. I cry for the children. I cry for the children. Cry for the children. And so I cry for the children. I cry for the children. No, I cry for the children. I cry for the children, I cry for the children. I cry for the children. They lost with no one to leave them. My name is Anna Chudnovsky and I teach grade three in the inner city. I don't have a lot of numbers to share with you today. Instead, I have a story of a real student and his family. A story that I hope will tell you a little bit about what it's like to be a student living in poverty. I'm telling you this story not because it's sad, but because I believe that being poor makes it hard to learn. And when it's too hard to learn, lifting yourself out of the poverty you're born into is incredibly hard. There's a boy in my class. He is Aboriginal. He is eight years old. 
he's the oldest and he has a younger brother and a younger sister. And his mom is pregnant and due to give birth any day now. The family has just moved here from Smithers because his mom is trying to start fresh and give her children some of the opportunities that she didn't herself have. The family lives in BC housing. This boy is smart. He is capable. He is kind. He is friendly. He helps others. He tries his best at school. But his life is too hard. The task he has in front of him is too grand, too monstrous to overcome. You see, he's poor. And when you're poor, as poor as he is, succeeding at school is such a very difficult challenge. We have a walking school bus at our school that picks up the kids from home in the housing complexes in the neighborhood and brings them to school. It helps to get the uh, kids to school on time. It builds a bit of community and it takes some of the stress of the before school rush off the parents' shoulders. The walking school bus picked up this child last week and when the support worker got to the door, the mom, nine months pregnant in a new city, trying to build her new life, confided in the worker that she had no groceries. She had only one single jar of olives in her fridge, and she started to cry. She was worried that she wouldn't have time to get groceries before the baby arrived. She's panicked that she won't be ready. Her son, my student, my kind, smart, lovely student, tried to comfort his mom as she stood there crying in the doorway. He is eight years old. And then he came to school to try to learn. We're working on adding with regrouping in my class. His family is in utter crisis, and he is trying to learn to carry the one. This same boy earlier in the year, when the weather was just getting cold, was wearing flip-flops to school. I asked him if he had another pair of shoes, and he said no. So I took him to the clothes room at our school. Yes, we have a clothes room. He chose a pair, and he looked very proud. When he ran off to go join his friends in the playground, he called back to me, I'll bring back the shoes at the end of the day. You see, he thought that I'd given him the shoes just for the day, for his time at school. He felt so unentitled to shoes that he thought he had to give them back to me. That lack of self-worth is devastating. It prevents you from opening your mind to learning. It makes focusing on adding or writing a persuasive paragraph or learning the water cycle, nearly impossible. This same boy's brother fell in the schoolyard last week. He tripped on a curb and got a concussion. Our secretary tried to call home, but the line was out of order. She walked to the home, got the mom, brought her back to the school, and told her about her youngest son, and she advised her to take him to the hospital to get it checked out. But you see, the mom didn't have bus fare, for herself and her three children to get to the hospital. She was desperately ashamed to admit it, but she didn't know how she could possibly manage the trip. So this is a family living in poverty. This is a boy who's trying to learn how to carry the one while his life is in upheaval. New city, new community, new school, new sibling, new stress. No shoes, no money, no support for a mother trying her best to provide for her kids, to give them a good start. And this kid, this sweet, smart, thoughtful boy, is just trying his best to learn. To be clear, this is just one story of one student in my class, 
I could tell you others of refugee families making a new home for themselves with a child who has nightmares every night of his father being shot in front of him or of a student who was physically pulled away from the only parent she's ever known or of a child living with her disabled grandmother and having to, at 10 years old, do all the cooking, cleaning, shopping, and maintenance because this grandmother is the only one in the family who is able to nurture and love her. I could tell you about a girl and her brother who chase the mice that live in their house back and forth from one bedroom to the other as a game. I could tell you about a little girl whose dad carefully butters one single piece of bread for her to take for lunch every day. There's more of them too. And they're all just trying to learn. And it's too hard. Because learning is about taking risks and trying your best. And it's about sometimes making mistakes. And when you're poor, when you're so poor that you're worried and anxious and insecure, learning to carry the one is almost impossible. I don't want to wake up knowing I don't have a future. So there was a story that I, I, I caught earlier today. Uh, it's I, I'm trying to it. The, okay, before I even start this, so understand you're gonna you're gonna throw something. Like don't 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 get like be shocked by it. like oh no I didn't know I was gonna throw something. I'm telling you now you're gonna throw something. There was a, a school teacher. Uh, no, not, not a school teacher. I take that back. Uh, a, ki- a kitchen manager at an elementary school that was fired. Fired from her job. She was uh, the kitchen manager at Cherry Creek School District. She was uh, fired from her job uh, because, apparently, when she was working uh, the kitchen... She was eating all the chicken nuggets for herself. Which is rude. You can't do and that. You can't, you can't <clears throat> just go around eating all the chicken nuggets. Right. And that would, would be... Everyone chicken nugget day. And if, she, if that was what she was... All she did was stealing some chicken nuggets... That'd be reasonable that you're going to say, like, you shouldn't steal your, your job stuff. But that's not what she did! Oh, dear. What did she do? Did she murder somebody? I'm going to quote this, uh, 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 this is, uh, being, uh, reported from, uh, the Denver Post. Uh, apparently, she, uh, fed people. Fed kids. What? How dare How she? Dare she? <laughs> quote, the Cherry Creek School District Nutrition Services Department fired Curry, because her name was, uh, Della Curry, uh, who was kitchen manager at Dakota Valley Elementary School in Aurora for giving school lunches to students who didn't have the money to pay for them. The school district has a free and reduced lunch program for children who meet federal income guidelines, but Curry, who got the axe last Friday, was giving lunch to children whose parents made too much to qualify for the program. State law prohibits the district from commenting on personal, personnel matters, according to the statement released uh, by the school district, but this is, a, this is, get, re- get ready for this. Get, re- get ready for this magic. Mm, I don't want it. Don't want it. The law! does not require the school district to provide meals to children who have forgotten their lunch money. That's a district decision. Well, you know, if those little brats would just remember to bring their 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 lunch money or if their parents would get off their lazy asses and go get jobs, then maybe they might be able to get a nugget or two mm-hmm. and not have to be sitting in a lunchroom at noon crying because they ain't got no food well, while everybody else is eating Hot Pockets. There's a second thing. According to our practice... 
We provide hot meals for two students the first three times they forget their lunch money and charge their parents' accounts. I mean, first of all, their parents have accounts set up with them? I've heard this is actually heard a thing. about this. Remember, because uh, they were sending people to jail for failure to pay their accounts. Yeah, they did that. The fourth time, we provide a cheese sandwich and milk. No child is ever allowed to go without lunch. Uh, Curry, 35, who worked there a year, doesn't deny she violated the policy. She believes it's, it, uh, it's misguided and she wants to change. She says it's a policy, it, it is policy to, ne- to never give out free food. That is all fine and dandy until you have little kids not on the free, free or reduced program and their account goes negative. Which, that could be a thing. Mm-hmm. And so, this is, I, I, I started talking about this, and so, a couple things with this. One, the quote when it says, the law does not require the school to district to provide a meal to children who have forgotten their lunch money. This is a this, this is a, a very interesting framing, right? So the idea is like so you you're, what you're supposed to see when you hear that particular framing is like these well-to-do kids who are just on their iPhone, uh, probably on their Xbox, and then they didn't even have the common de- uh, courtesy to go get, grab their lunch money from their parent, and now they're saying that they're hungry and ugh, we don't have to give you lunch because of that, right? That's the that's the the the, the, the picture they uh, paint. But there are myriad reasons as to why a kid might not have lunch money at that moment. And the the, the teacher, I mean uh, the administrator, literally says uh, it's it's cute to not give them lunch. Right? Uh, uh, it's cute right up until they don't have any money in their account, which is a thing. And so apparently at another school, uh, someone was tweeting at me uh, about the fact that like uh, her brother had uh, apparently gotten lunch on credit one time and their parents didn't pay it, and he didn't get his diploma, which. Is madness, right? This, these are all uh, ridiculous things. And in my mind, and maybe, and maybe there is a, 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 a angle at this that I don't see. And I'm sure someone will feel uh, will feel free to uh, to to correct me on this. Matter of fact, SOTC at twib.me. Let us know directly. I we will we will read it on air if it makes sense. Um, I don't understand why you don't feed a kid. Because kids are lazy and they should get jobs. Don't you remember back a few years ago when Newt Gingrich had literally suggested that some of the underprivileged underprivileged kids should work for food? He wanted them mopping floors in the school. Like, see, this country does not give a fuck about poor people. No. They do, literally, they don't care. And so what's really heartbreaking, and I hope that something changes, but I'm going to read this message from this woman that she posted on Facebook. It says, I was let go today from my position as a kitchen manager for Cherry Creek School District. I was fired for giving food to children that did not have money. While I know what I did was legally wrong, I do not feel bad about it, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. I will never understand how the best country in the world considers a cheese sandwich to be adequate nutrition for a child. I will never understand how one of the richest countries in the world cannot provide lunch for a children. I will find something better. The only part that hurts my heart right now is not getting to see all the kids that I have grown to love so much. Summer vacation just started a week early. Now, it goes on to say that she, over the course of the year, she provided 20 students with a free hot lunch. So that's over the course of one school year, the school district was out 20 hot lunches for kids who she said she would see students crying in the lunchroom because they were hungry and they had no money. And so frequently, instead of letting them go hungry, she would pay for the lunches out of her own pocket. So sometimes she was paying for these kids' lunches, and then she gave out 20 free lunches over the course of the year. Fire, fire her. She must be. String her up. What is wrong with people? Did she? What, uh, what was it specifically? Oh, Aaron, say, say what you're saying, Aaron. Like, what a great Christian country we live in. All right, go on. No, I'm just, I'm just trying to uh, figure out exactly. I don't know. This to me, this is just this. There's just no, there's no good reason. Like, I, like, like how? First of all, how much is the lunch? Because I'm assuming the lunch isn't 
$1,500. A lunch. Oh, God. I'm assuming yeah. that these aren't $1,500. Yeah. I'm assuming it's not $350. Yeah. I'm assuming it's not $50 per lunch. I'm sure not. I'm going to assume that the lunch is a, probably a few bucks. Yeah. Yeah, they're not Don't giving know. these. They're not giving these right. people, these kids, like gourmet food. It's like some chicken nuggets and a cookie and Wait, an you're, apple. Wait, you're, you're telling me that they don't, they didn't bring in uh, La Bernardin to. Uh... Yeah, or Wolfgang Puck is not right. making them okay. little lunch boxes. So, so and and you know you can you can qualify for a free or reduced lunch, but your family, a family of four, can't make more than thirty one thousand dollars. Also, family of four. Apparently, if you don't actually have a place to live. Uh, it's hard to fill out a lot of the paperwork for this stuff. And then let's not, let's not forget there is a lovely gray area that we don't talk about sometimes where people can afford, uh, people, uh, don't qualify for free lunch, but can't really afford to pay for the lunch. Right. Because the government decides that you, uh, that, well, this is the time around here is where you should be able to afford this. And you're like, actually, I can't afford this, my rent and everything else. I can't actually afford that. And it's like, well, it sucks to be your kid then. And that's the end of that. Yeah. And it's the most ridiculous thing. And so either you're, you're put in a position where you have to commit fraud. Like uh, uh, and say like I don't make this much money, or you just have to your kid can't afford it or something. Like it's it's and here's the best part about all of this is that apparently uh, this is not this is not necessary, and there are various places where this does not uh, uh, happen anymore. You know why? Ask me why, Aaron. Why does this not happen in some places? Because there are places where everybody eats free. Prime example of this place, uh, this is a, a system that was introduced in Baltimore. Uh, according to the Baltimore Sun, for the first time in the history of school lunch program, all children in Baltimore are created equal. Beginning this week, every student in the city, regardless of income level, is being offered free breakfast and lunch under the federal program that allows school districts to eliminate a decades-old meal subsidy per, uh, structure for students in high-poverty schools. The B- Baltimore is among a handful of districts in Maryland taking advantage of the opportunity that has opened to schools nationwide last year. Maryland schools are able to adopt the program under the state legislation passed this year in the General Assembly, which to me sounds like uh, that all of a sudden that means that you have to get through your state, and if your state is full of douchebags, i.e. Republicans, sorry about that, actually not sorry, um, then sorry. you're probably, you're probably going to have an issue uh, uh, having uh, this type of thing uh, come down. And the, the, article, the article, like I'm not even going to go through the whole uh, point of the article, but it brings up all the points of like, hey, uh, when people are eat, they do better in school. Uh, some people have various issues with this. And this is just something that you don't, like, eat, like, like people have talked about the, uh, the stigma that comes with even the, uh, the free lunch uh, um, uh, thing. Because I remember, I was, uh, Aaron, do you remember being, oh, you went to a private school though. I don't know if you had the same thing, where yeah. there was a stigma around free lunch. Uh, yeah, I went to I went in grade school. I went to like a public private school hybrid thing where there were free lunches, and there was actually a bit of a thing about free lunches. There was a, a thing bringing a paper bag lunch to school. Yeah, yeah. So you be you you can be mocked uh, for this, uh, and 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 it's it's ridiculous when just to me it's kids feed them. Yeah, feed the kids. Yeah, they're that's children. All I'm, that's all I'm, feed the damn kids. And, that, and here's the thing: 
that this is another thing that pisses me off about, you know, I'm a reproductive rights advocate and an activist and a journalist, and that's what I do. And so you see all of these throngs of conservatives who are so concerned about making sure that every little egg and every little sperm becomes a, becomes a fetus and that fetus is, that unborn child must be born. And we've got to make sure that women can't control their own bodies and they can't terminate pregnancies because a lot of women who otherwise might want to have children realize they cannot afford to have children. And this includes primarily People who are already married with children. That's one thing that a lot of folks don't want to talk about. They like to make it seem like it's its liberal sluts who are out there just using abortions as birth control when it's really people who already have children who cannot afford to have more children because this country makes it inhospitable for ch- for mothers to take care of their children. It's a hostile birthing. This entire country is a hostile birthing environment unless you are wealthy. And I mean like upper middle class. It costs a quarter of a million dollars to raise a child over the course of that child's lifetime. And so we're talking about conservatives, Republicans, who will not, who demand that every child be born. But then once that child is born, like, pfft, pfft, hungry kids? Pfft, whatever. Not our problem. Yes, well, I'm broken, I'm hungry. Man, I'm ragged and Mark Pittman is uh, he's a he's a progressive. He writes for the op-ed pages of the New York Times, and he, and he's talking about how food the, the the situation with food farming, factory farming, destruction of soil, uh, thirty, forty, fifty thousand people getting sick from foodborne illness, all that stuff. Every you know across the United States is a symptom that something has gone horribly wrong. We have a food system in the United States that is producing an epidemic of obesity, an epidemic of type 2 diabetes, an epidemic of heart disease, an epidemic of, of uh, celiac and, and uh, IBS, and with a large debate about what's causing that, whether it has to do with glyphosate or, or, or other compounds. We have a food system that's failing us. It's destroying our soil. But it is making a small number of people mind-bogglingly rich. You get people like Joni Ernst, the new senator from, what is it, Iowa, I think, who, who whose family took almost a half a million dollars in subsidies from the federal government. So you got farmers who are doing well. You've got a bunch of farmers in Congress who are pulling down hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of dollars in subsidies from the federal government for their various businesses, many of them agricultural. But even worse, you've got, you know, I mean, Walmart has now moved into groceries. The Walton family is getting richer on this. So the question then becomes, why do we grow food? Just as a starting point. Do we, I mean, it, it, there's really a, uh, you could say a relatively choice. There's obviously some gray area in the middle, but as a statement of purpose, as a country, why do we grow food? Most of us would say we grow food so that we can have a decent life, you know, so we can live. Food is necessary for survival. 
But if that's true, then why is so much of the American food supply actually poisonous? It's actually killing us or sickening us or preventing us from having optimal health. Why is it so much of our food supply is in such bad shape? And the only possible answer is that we don't produce food in the United States for the public good. If we did, we wouldn't be sterilizing our soil with chemicals. We wouldn't be, you know, uh, contaminating our environment with genetically modified organisms. You know, none of this stuff would be going on if we were producing food for a public good. But we're not producing food for a public good. We're producing food to make money for somebody. This is how twisted things have become in the United States, particularly over the past 30 or 40 years. This is the, the logical conclusion of the whole Reaganomics thing, that the only good people are the capitalists, the rich people are the ones who are going to lead us, the workers should just take their lot in life and suck it up, and sorry you can't have a union anymore, sorry you can't go to college for free anymore, sorry if you lose your job, you don't get any unemployment insurance. This has been the Republican mantra for 35 years now, and they're putting it on steroids. Now it's, sorry, sorry in a year and a half, we just put this in a place, the Republicans did it in the House of Representatives, in about a year and a half, a 19% cut in Social Security disability insurance that people paid into their entire lives. Republicans want to cut that. Why would they want to cut it? Well, for the same reason that they cut Medicare so many times. You say, wait a minute, the Republicans cut Medicare? Yeah, of course, they drill holes in Medicare so that then United Healthcare and AARP can come in and say, hey, we'll sell you a supplemental policy to fill that hole that our Republican buddies in the House of Representatives and the Senate drilled into it. They're just going to do the same thing with Social Security. If they cut Social Security benefits by 20%, then they'll say, hey, you know, you can always buy a disability policy from United Healthcare or somebody like that. Actually, IAG sells them. Aren't they wonderful? I mean, you know, we bailed them out. Hey, put them to some productive use. Mark Bittman says, and I absolutely believe with, that this sentiment is one of the most important things that we all need to be talking about, that we need to be talking to our politicians about, and that in particular we need to be leaning on Democratic politicians and the Hillary Clinton campaign over, because in all probability she will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And here's what Bittman says in today's New York Times in the op-ed pages. His, the article is, What is the Purpose of Society? He says, Progressives are not thinking broadly or creatively enough. By failing to pressure Democrats to take strong stands on everything, from environmental protection to gun control to income inequality, progressives allow the party to use populist rhetoric while making America safer for business than it is for Americans. Why do we have government? According to the Constitution, we, the people, created government in order to form a more perfect union and provide for the general welfare of our people. 
According to the Declaration of Independence, we did it so that we could all have life, liberty, and we could even pursue happiness. Now, how do you pursue happiness if you're working three jobs and making $16,000 a year when you got a couple of kids and you, you can't afford anything? But it gets, it goes beyond that. Mark Bittman says, shouldn't adequate shelter, clothing, food, and health care be universal? This was the essence of Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights. With his second, which I, I'll play clips for you when we come back from the break at 20 after. But basically what Franklin Roosevelt said is, okay, we got this thing down about, you know, we're, we're free of England. We're free of foreign domination. And as of 1940, when he came, or four year it was that he came up with his second Bill of Rights, as of that point in time, he had even gotten the, the capitalists under control to a certain extent. He had gotten unions, the, the right to unionize, passed over their objections. He had ended child labor over their objections. He had ended child prostitution over their objections. All these things, they said, oh, it's the right to contract. Right. He was integrating the military. He was, he was, it, it, it just the, the list goes on and on of the New Deal. You know, unemployment, long-term unemployment insurance. The government is the employer of last resort. He says, okay, we've got this stuff under control. What's next? Well, what's next is that food, clothing, and health care should be rights. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Now, a right is a very different thing from a privilege. And you and I and the rest of the progressive movement need to begin this conversation loudly. It's the last time I talk about food. The more I talk about it, the more I think about it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, keep SNAP strong. But first this, and the first voice you're going to hear is from notable Republican Bob Dole, and the second voice you're going to hear is from notable Democrat George McGovern. If you ask recipients of the food stamp program how it originated and who sort of pushed it along, I don't think they would know, but that's not important. The important thing is that it's they benefit and uh, they have a better quality of life. 
I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we revolutionized the food stamp program for the better. We brought in millions of people who heretofore had never heard of the program or who couldn't afford to participate. Senators Bob Dole and George McGovern are the Democrat and Republican credited by World Food Program USA as being pioneers in the way food assistance is delivered to those who need it in this country. Their website unequivocally declares, quote, It is no exaggeration to say that every major U.S. program designed to help feed poor children bears the imprint of these two men, unquote. But how quickly things change. Now, Katie Klebusik, known to you as the person who researches and writes all of the activism segments for this show, including this one, with the exception of these words right here, these words that I'm saying right now, uh, because she didn't think she should try to describe herself. She wanted me to do that. Uh, she's an all-around political renaissance woman. She writes and runs social media, not just for this show, but as a freelancer for campaigns she cares about, including reproductive justice, poverty, mental health, just to name a few. And she was published in a piece in Rolling Stone recently titled Republicans Are Trying to Take Food Out of My Mouth, in which she tells her own story and points out that the GOP has spent the past four years proposing 10-year plans to quote-unquote balance the budget that cuts more than $130 billion from food assistance programs, WIC and SNAP, that Dolan McGovern worked so hard to make more user-friendly and easier to work for. Now, why a need to cut approximately half of one hundredth of one percent? That's point zero zero eight five of one percent out of a three point eight trillion dollar federal budget. Well, according to the GOP, the answer is priorities and redundancy. Well, Katie, who spent the first six months of this year utilizing SNAP after an unexpected medical bill, an experience that she actually details in her article, makes a good point, saying 49 million people like her is actually pretty redundant. That's how many people are food insecure in this country, 49 million, or 14% of our population. One in six Americans are living with or are in danger of being hungry. The hungry segment of our population really never drops below 11%. This is simply the percentage of our friends and neighbors and coworkers that we are willing to live with being hungry as a trade for our capitalist culture. Currently, the GOP is in charge of the budget, and they are celebrating a drop in SNAP dollars for 2016, actually due to factors affecting the program's funding calculator, like fewer expected enrollees and a break in food inflation, as though they managed to sneak a law past the president that fundamentally undid Dole and McGovern's legacy. Their intentions are clear, though, by their false premise boasting and their on-the-record long-term budget plans. Now is the time to get involved in the effort to bolster these life-saving programs because they are absolutely at risk. The Food Research and Action Center, FRAC, is a national organization working to maintain funding for food assistance programs and fill the gaps with private efforts when public money falls short. They have a great legislative action center at frac.org where you can track and support or oppose proposed state and federal budget actions. At frac.org, be sure to sign the petition at Tell Congress to Keep SNAP Strong, which encourages Congress not just to ditch any notion of cuts, but join with the White House and Progressive Caucus in bolstering life-sustaining access to food. You can also share your experiences and amplify others through a hashtag Katie revived earlier this year, hashtag poverty is. 
The hashtag trended on multiple continents, and the stories are powerful. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If keeping food on the plates of the hungry matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about maintaining SNAP funding via social media so that others in your network can get behind the effort too. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. If you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. If you teach a man to fish, he eats for life. But if you build a robot to fish, do all men starve to death? <laughs> that is the question posed by Scott Santons, one of the outspoken proponents for the basic income idea. An idea that has fans on both the far right and the far left. The last idea to accomplish that was a bill mandating that Dr. Oz shut the f*** up. <laughs> Basic income says that every American is given a certain amount of money every month, no matter who they are, rich or poor, young or old, black or white. Uh, the number usually talked about for basic income is $1,000 per month. Now, if you're American like me, you hear this and you immediately get skeptical. Something deep down within our core cries out, hold on, that sounds way, way too fair. That, that sounds ridiculously equal. Where's the knockdown, drag out competition in which I have to beat out the other guy or I die? Where's the I'm better than you and to prove it, I'm going to make sure you can't feed your family mentality that has made America great, huh? But basic income makes a ton of sense. The left wing likes it because it would end homelessness and poverty. The right wing likes it because it would end welfare, Medicare, Social Security, and it would end left wingers whining constantly about homelessness and poverty. Think about that, right wingers. How great would your life be if you never had to hear another asshole like me go, but what about the homeless? There's children forced to sleep inside dead raccoons. And then waking up at 3 a.m. to go to work at a factory that produces hookers for billionaires. <laughs> Never have to hear it again. And basic income is not a new idea either. It was a stated goal of pinko, commie, leftist, feminazi Richard Nixon. <laughs> and before the, before the Senate crushed it, the House of Representatives even passed a bill for basic income in 1970. Nowadays, you'd have trouble getting the House to agree on a bill for basic water. Just ask Detroit. They'd love some basic water. <laughs> But people said basic income would never work. Everyone would, would quit their jobs. Everyone would, would sit around all day just diddling themselves. <laughs> right? First of all, if that's really your plan for every minute of free time, then maybe it's a personal problem. Secondly, if you replace diddling themselves with reading, creating art, spending time with your kids, planting a household garden, taking care of grandpa, and diddling fellow 
consenting adults of an appropriate age, then it doesn't sound so bad, does it? But most importantly, studies prove that people don't stop working just because they're given some money. In fact, several studies show that people work harder when they have the option to avoid an activity than when they're forced to do it. There are also studies showing that in tasks that involve even a low level of cognitive skill, there is a negative correlation between greater monetary reward and increased performance. In large-scale tests of basic income in Seattle and Denver, they found that people decreased the amount they worked by only 8%. And here's the thing. We could stand to work less, all right? Not that many of us are emergency medical technicians saving lives, giving mouth-to-mouth -to, -mouth to Nobel Peace Prize winners, all right? Guess what? If, you're, if, if the copy for that leg wax commercial that you're working on gets written 8% slower we're going to be okay. If 8% fewer blooming onions get delivered to customers, humankind will continue. Hell, think of some of the most po powerful positions in the world. CEO of Goldman Sachs or Citibank. If they do 8% less work, how great would that be for the planet? Literally, the only job that we can't afford as a species to slow down by 8% is the guy running the amusement park rides, all right? If I have to wait 8% longer for the log flume, standing in the blistering sun between a kid screaming because his blood is critically low on Skittles, and a, and a man wearing Freedom Ain't Free t-shirt talking about how we faked the moon landing, I will beat someone to death with a flip-flop. <laughs> In fact, there is a place in the world where a low level of basic income is already in place. The people are paid a dividend simply for living there. It's called Alaska, as in the place that used to be run by this lefty socialist queen. Here's another benefit. The very ability of people to not need a job makes it that much harder for employers to exploit employees with insufficient wages and poor working conditions. Wait, in America without exploited workers, now you're just destroying our culture. <laughs> so now that I have you convinced that this is the best idea ever, how do we pay for it? It sounds like a lot of money. Well, first of all, once you get rid of all the programs it would eliminate, you've, over, you've covered over half of the cost. But you still need a trillion dollars. That money can come from a lot of places, like closing the tax loopholes for corporations and billionaires, De right? Decreasing the, the trillion-dollar-a-year military budget, taxing capital gains, taxing transactions on Wall Street. So let's see, better, healthier society, more time off work, more power for workers, no more poverty, cut down bureaucracy, and vastly decreased inequality. But why would we do that when our current system is working like gangbusters? I mean, look around. Is anyone complaining? No. We're busy saving up for those anxiety pills we have on layaway. Hi, Jay. This is Colin from Cleveland. Haven't called in a while. And I have to say, I really like the conversation you're having about happiness. I've reflected on this quite a while for myself. And uh, through the past episodes, I've revealed little bits about myself. Years ago, I was a firefighter paramedic. 
volunteer department just outside of Cleveland. I was also I'm a union construction worker. I enjoy building infrastructure that improves the city. I know that other people in the city are going to use. And now I'm actually teaching the apprenticeship in my union. So now I'm actually getting apprentices and journeymen in to get certified and learn new skills and trades to further their careers. And I've thought about this, and I just realized, I guess for me, the idea of helping, helping others, whatever, just the feeling that I can give myself that I believe I've made a difference to someone, whether they know me or not, is what makes me happy. I guess that's it, just making a difference. You know, making making things count in life, I guess, is what uh, brings me happiness. So, love to hear what other people have to say. Thanks again, Jay. Hi, Jay. It's Ryan from Phoenix. You ask, uh, what's changed in our lives that makes us happier, makes our lives better? Well, over the last few years, I can say that my career choice has had its ups and downs. And I want to just share with people what I what I did or what I fought for that brought it, you know, out of the downs and, and brought me back into enjoying it. And for so many of us, we spend so much time in our careers that why not make that choice or make your autonomy in your job a priority and fight for it? So I noticed for myself that when it came to me changing uh, a little bit of career choice, I've always been in urban planning. I started off working for a consultant and he gave me a lot of autonomy, gave me a lot of responsibility. I got to choose my, my course and I got to make a difference in communities in the way that I felt was most effective. And I had to work with clients and, and work, you know, steer them and consult with them and make sure that, that my points were heard. And, you know, sometimes we had to come to a compromise of what was profitable for them. But overall, I felt like I was making a difference and I was pushing the envelope in a positive direction towards sustainable development and communities that had a positive impact on people. Well, move over into municipal government now where I'm working, and I felt like I, I became handcuffed. I didn't have a boss who believed in me. I didn't have that autonomy to make the differences that I saw that I could make, but my time was being dictated and bogged down by the things that I wasn't even most talented in. I was My talents weren't being tapped into. So fast forward six months into uh, a review, and I took that opportunity to really make my case and, and, and move those arguments up up the ladder above my boss and up to HR and really uh, make a case for myself of how I could be more effective and how I could do my job better and how I would be happier and my boss would be happier. I'd actually be making my boss look better with some autonomy. And by working those changes and working the, to fight for my right to be an effective employee, I made my life a whole lot better. And fast forward seven months now, and I have a boss who now really understands me we're working together better than we ever had uh prior and that was because i had a, a very respectful but yet direct conversation about what i could be doing to help fulfill the goals and and made an argument for myself and so when everybody i'm sure everybody can take a little bit from my story and hopefully encourage them to fight for their autonomy and fight for their own empowerment in their position to do what they really love and 
and pursue something, even if they feel like it's a bit of a risk when they take on, you know, going over their boss's head or doing what they have to do. Just make sure you're pursuing it in a respectful manner, keeping in mind, you know, the goals of the overall organization, and just frame your argument in a way that shows how you can be more effective at achieving what everybody's going for. And you can find that it can be quite effective and that all of a sudden your instincts align with what you're doing on a, more on a day-to-day basis and your nine to five becomes a much more enjoyable experience with that uh thanks for the great podcast and thanks for an opportunity to talk about something besides the minutia that we normally talk about thanks jay Hey Jay, this is Marty from California again. I had a question that I hope you could answer given your background in environmentalism. Uh, in the latest climate change show, Tom Hartman was dissuading a caller on nuclear energy as a possible fossil fuel alternative because the uh, uranium mining and concrete construction were uh, very damaging to the environment and then plus the obvious uh, waste products that posed uh, an environmental threat. On the other hand, the manufacture of photovoltaics involved dozens of dangerous chemicals and hundreds of millions of gallons of toxic sludge are produced every year and dumped in lakes and fields, rendering them unfit for life. And, I mean, I guess we don't think about it that much because most of the manufacturing happens in China and it's an easy case of nimbyism. So my question is, are the long-term environmental consequences of these two energy sources at all comparable. Uh, I couldn't find a good answer online. Um, So thanks for the great work. I hope you have some insight on this. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. In either case, the closer you keep your message to two minutes or under, the better chance it has of being played. Now, first things first, you heard me talk today about some of the work Katie does outside of this show. You know, I mean, she she doesn't so much work for me per se, as much as I'm one of her clients. Uh, For the past few years, she's been building up a platform for herself that allows her to do the work she cares about. Reproductive justice is one of her main passions. So when Texas abortion clinics are in trouble, she flies down there and joins the fight. When celebrity activists come together to raise money for abortion funds, Katie runs the social media campaign. Uh, You know, she's regularly published as a freelance writer and a regular guest on several radio shows and podcasts. So she's definitely making a name for herself, and I live in fear of the day that she gets too big and important to keep doing the work that she does for this show. Nonetheless, she deserves to be supported in her efforts to cobble together a living wage in exchange for all of this good work that she's doing full-time. And so to that end, she set up a fundraising page at patreon.com. If you want to help her make her platform sustainable while she does the work of culture change, visit patreon.com slash underscore speak. That link will also be in the show notes. She's asking for as little as $1 per month to support her work, and she's working her way up to her initial goal of just $500 a month, so you know that every dollar you give makes a huge difference. Again, that's patreon.com slash katie 
underscore speak, uh, which is also the handle where you'll find her on Twitter. Moving on, in response to my recent comments about coal country, coal miners, and transitioning away from coal entirely, you know, taking away all their jobs, uh, I got a reply from UK listener Ben, who's familiar with the history of UK coal communities, and pointed out that mining communities aren't just proud of their work because of the adverse conditions they go through, but also because of the brotherhood that comes from working to overcome those conditions. And of course he's right. I mean, just as the example I used of the military, uh, it's only natural for communities to become very tight-knit and proud when people depend on their fellow workers for their very lives and safety. And uh, all of that reminded me of a movie I saw recently that I just have to insist that you go see. It's not in the theaters anymore, as far as I know. The title is simply Pride, and is based on the true story of a gay and lesbian group in the UK that decided to help raise money for striking miners. And and this is back in the, I'm going to say, 80s, I think. And so it's part LGBTQ rights and part labor union activism all mixed into one, all feel good and funny and informative and based on a true story. So if you can find it to rent or stream wherever you get your movies, definitely, definitely check that out. And now finally, I want to respond to Marty from California regarding nuclear power. I did used to work for a climate change NGO, but I don't want to overstate my position. I am certainly no expert, especially on nuclear power. Uh, If there is something that I'm an expert at, it is knowing who to listen to and who to trust. And the short answer about nuclear is that until very recently, no one whose opinion I trusted has ever been in favor of nuclear. So uh, to start out, like my old boss, Mike Tidwell, used to give speeches in which he described why he opposed nuclear power and it wasn't for safety concerns. Uh, He said that if he thought nuclear power was part of the answer to averting climate change, he would approve having one built right next to his house. Uh, His problem was the expense. Nuclear power is pretty simple. You know, you use uranium to boil water and steam turns a generator. And Mike's point was that the setup expense involved in nuclear is so high that it would be about as efficient to shovel $20 bills into a furnace to boil the water. And in a world of finite investment dollars, it doesn't make sense to invest ungodly sums of money in nuclear that could better be spent elsewhere. And then Bill McKibben, head of 350.org, takes basically the same stance. He's talked about not being opposed to nuclear on philosophical grounds. He just thinks that the capital costs are too high. And Naomi Klein, author of This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, which seems like it should be the new Bible for the climate movement, came to basically the same conclusion, except by philosophical means. And rather than dividing energy sources into carbon-free and carbon-intensive, she separates renewables from extractive energy, which puts nuclear in the extractive category. So she puts it pretty bluntly regarding uh, the philosophy behind technofixes like nuclear or geoengineering. And so she says in the book, quote, nuclear power and geoengineering are not solutions to the ecological crisis. They are a doubling down on exactly the kind of reckless short-term thinking that got us into this mess. Just as we spewed greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, thinking that tomorrow would never come, both of these hugely high-risk technologies would create even more dangerous forms of waste, and neither has a discernible exit strategy. And then she explains the fundamentally different philosophy that must be adopted if we ever want to truly get on a sustainable path. She says... 
This need to adapt to nature is what drives some people mad about renewables. Even at a very large scale, they require a humility that is the antithesis of damming a river, blasting bedrock for gas, or harnessing the power of the atom. They demand that we adapt ourselves to the rhythms of natural systems as opposed to bending those systems to our will with brute force engineering. Put another way, if extractive energy sources are NFL football players bashing away at the earth, then renewables are surfers, riding the swells as they come, but doing some pretty fancy tricks along the way. It is this powerfully seductive illusion of total control that a great many boosters of extractive energy are so reluctant to relinquish. There is no doubt that moving to renewables represents more than just a shift in power sources, but also a fundamental shift in power relations between humanity and the natural world on which we depend. The power of the sun, wind, and waves can be harnessed to be sure, but unlike fossil fuels, those forces can never be fully possessed by us, nor do the same rules work everywhere. So that's the philosophy that makes sense to me for the long-term strategy. However, to be fair, Dr. James Hansen, famed NASA climate scientist turned full-time climate activist, whose opinion I also trust, is now saying that advances in nuclear technology can make plants safer, cheaper, reduce proliferation risks, and solve waste disposal problems, and that we should be looking at a fresh approach to nuclear power for the 21st century. So theoretically, if all of those problems can be overcome, and that seems like a big if to me, then it may be a viable option for the short term only for the sake of reducing carbon emissions, but still seems crazy to me for the long term. If you are a climate scientist or an otherwise extremely well-informed person on this subject, I would love to hear from you. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show at Itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained 